Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. It may be a compromise, but there's still 11 zeros in the price tag. The lead starts right now. President Biden set to speak in just minutes to sell a now slightly scaled back plan to Democrats and the American people. What survived and what is getting cut in the social safety net expansion bill and how this could affect your family? Kids and needles. You can almost hear the crying already. The White House says they have a new plan to vaccinate the youngest Americans, kids as young as five. Plus, breaking today in the Gabby Petito case, what could be a massive clue in the search for Brian Laundry. Some of his things apparently found in a park and cadaver dogs are now on the scene. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. And in the next hour, President Biden returning to his roots, visiting his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, where the White House says he will lay out exactly what is included in this new compromise over his massive economic bill. Here's what sources tell us will be included in this nearly $2 trillion plan to expand the social safety net. We're told it will include universal pre-K, a one-year expansion of the child tax credit, which brings kids out of poverty, four weeks paid family leave, child care and elder care, an expansion of Medicare to include vision and hearing. What's out? Well, we're told tuition-free community college is gone and the Clean Electricity Power Program, the cornerstone climate measure included in the initial proposal. Moments ago, President Biden told reporters that he's optimistic, saying, quote, I think we'll get a good deal. But as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, neither of the two key Democratic Senate holdouts, Manchin and Cinema, have yet to announce if they are on board. President Biden looking for the end game. I'm hopeful. I think we'll get a good deal. The president making last-minute concessions as Democrats struggle to compromise on his plan to reshape the social safety net and fight climate change. Everyone is going to have to compromise if we're going to find that legislative sweet spot we can all get behind. Biden offering a new price tag, telling Democrats it will likely be in the $1.75 trillion to $1.9 trillion range, further from the $3.5 trillion sought by progressives and closer to Senator Joe Manchin's $1.5 trillion proposed ceiling. Biden warning the two years of free community college likely won't make the cut, despite being a massive priority that he touted for months. And then I want to add two years of free community college for everyone. And we can afford it. While initially calling for 12 weeks of paid leave for new parents, that could now be reduced to four weeks. 
and the child tax credit will likely only be extended for another year, despite hopes it would be longer. This has the potential to reduce child poverty in the same way that the Social Security reduced poverty for the elderly. The crucial climate portion of the plan also remains undecided, as party leaders work to bridge the divide between progressives and moderate holdouts. There's no doubt in my mind that the implications of the final package will be historic when it comes to fighting climate change. The bill is still expected to include some of the biggest Democratic priorities, including expanding Medicare, universal pre-K, and billions for climate change. I think the thing I feel the best about is the Progressive Caucus had five priorities that we laid out five months ago, and all of those five priorities are in this bill. And Jake, the president is now on his way here to Scranton to sell this bill, even though it still remains unfinished, of course, at this point. One other sticking point as they are trying to close a deal here is that Senator Cinema, we are told, is still opposed to raising taxes on corporations and those high earners. Of course, that is a chief way that they had proposed to pay for this plan. So still a long way to go. They are hoping to come to an agreement by this Friday. All right, Kathleen Collins in Scranton in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Thanks so much. Here to discuss the senior advisor to President Biden. Cedric Richmond, Mr. Richmond, good to see you as always. So the White House had to give on some priorities to reach this potential compromise. Tuition-free community college is gone. Paid leave dropped from 12 weeks to four. The child tax credit will be expanded for one year, not four. These are big cuts to items that the president ran on. In exchange for those cuts, do you have a commitment from Senators Manchin and Cinema that they will now support this compromise? We've made a lot of progress, but it's still, uh, we still have work to do, and that is clear. So nothing's off the table, uh, but I will tell you what uh, the president's red line from day one was he was not going to raise any taxes on anyone making under $400,000. So we're still in, uh, we have a good framework, but we're still in the process of finalizing and trying to reach compromise. So you see that the president does that the best. That's what he spent yesterday doing, and now he's going out taking his case to the American people. So that's a no, uh, I'm guessing. Um, and we just heard Caitlin Collins say that Senator Sinema is, is telling people that she still objects to the tax increases in the bill, raising uh, the top, top, tap, uh, top tax bracket, raising the corporate uh, tax rate. Uh, is there any room for compromise there? Would you introduce the legislation without tax increases? Look, this is still a work in progress. I will it, it doesn't make sense to necessarily negotiate on TV. I will say that it's wildly popular with the American people that the top 1% and wealthy corporations pay their fair share. Working families have been paying their fair share for decades. So it's our position that corporations and the top 1% step up. If Senator Cinema is convinced that raising the corporate tax rate would make American businesses less competitive in the world. And that's my understanding is that she uh, is close with Senator Rob Portman. They've worked hard together on the infrastructure bill. And Senator Portman wrote that part of the, the, Trump's ta- the Trump tax cuts. If she's convinced of that, uh, even if it's popular, how do you get her vote um, if she doesn't care about your argument that it's popular among voters? Well, I think that's why you have conversations and you bring people to the table and Uh, You state your position, they state their position, and you try to reach an agreement. And I think the president's committed uh, to doing that. Uh, Again, we firmly believe that uh, corporations in the top 1% should pay their fair share. 
On the child tax credit, progressive Congressman Richie Torres of New York raised this concern on CNN earlier today. Take a listen. I do have a concern that a one-year expansion would be a death sentence for the child tax credit. If the Republicans were to assume control in 2022, the child tax credit would likely be left to expire, millions of children would likely be plunged into poverty, and our greatest triumph of racial equity would likely be undone. So the child tax credit, as you um, have rightly said before, it is hugely successful in lifting children out of poverty in the United States. Doesn't Congressman Torres have a point that making it a one-year bill for this, uh, you're taking a huge risk because Republicans, in all likelihood, will recapture the House next year uh, and they might kill it or just let it expire? A couple of things. One, I won't concede that Republicans are likely to recapture the House. I spent some time there. I have pretty good feel there. But the point about the child tax credit, and I think Congressman Torres is right, it's important. It's a game changer for children. And if we have our way, uh, we would make it permanent. But what we are going to do is make it, uh, we're going to make the refundability permanent. And uh, we're going to continue to fight for the enhanced uh, benefits. So whether it's 3600 or 3000 or 2600 or 2000 we're going to fight for the most we can get because it will raise Uh, children out of poverty. And it's a humongous tax cut for working families. There's a new Politico analysis that claims that the way that the Build Back Better Act is is structured actually uh, would force Hispanic-serving colleges and historically black colleges and universities to, to essentially compete against each other for billions of dollars in federal funding. Democratic Congressman Raul uh, Grijalva said in response, quote, we should not be getting into robbing Peter to pay Paul or fighting over an amount that doesn't satisfy the needs of respective groups of people, unquote. Look, I know you're a proud graduate of an HBCU, Morehouse College. Um, are you concerned about this? Well, we want to have a uh, significant investment, the largest investment ever into our colleges and universities, especially those that serve uh, minorities. So we're talking about our HBCUs, our uh, MSIs, HSIs, all of those schools. And this is not a you know, zero-sum game. Uh, HBCUs don't have to fail in order for other institutions to succeed, and it, vice versa. So we take the congressman's point uh, very, uh, you know, uh, we give credit to it. But at the end of the day, uh, Chairman Scott on the Education Committee and that committee will do a lot in terms of draft- drafting to make sure that four grant programs, like kind universities, will compete against each other. A source tells CNN that the White House is exploring right now whether to deploy the National Guard to help ease the massive supply chain issues uh, that we're all going through right now by un- unloading cargo and driving trucks. Um, if this backlog is so detrimental, uh, why not send them now? Well, that would be uh, news to me, and I'm certainly not here to make an announcement that we're going to use the National Guard uh, in the supply chain. All right. Senate Republicans, as you know, just blocked another uh, key vote uh, on on legislation that Democrats uh, offered on on voting rights. Um, There are Republicans in on Capitol Hill who seem very willing to work with Democrats and who seem very willing uh, to talk about the threat to democracy uh, that Donald Trump posed uh, from Election Day to today. Uh, in terms of trying to overturn the results of of the election. And when you look at people like Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, Pat Toomey, Adam Kinzinger, is there not a a more basic bipartisan bill that could be fashioned 
to at least provide the minimal attempt uh, to protect voters from another attempt to overthrow the election. I understand the Democrats want a, a far-reaching voting rights bill, but the House and the Senate are composed as they are. Is there not a more bipartisan way this could be done? Well, if they are willing, they have not shown it yet. Uh, we've not had one vote for any election reform or voter protection uh, legislation yet. But they'll get another chance because you'll have the John Lewis Voting Rights Act extension coming up in the Senate. And if they're truly uh, serious about protecting the sacred right to vote, they'll get a chance to sign on to that piece of legislation, bring us 10 votes so that we can pass it and we can get ready for elections and make sure that we don't suppress or subvert the vote. So they'll get a chance. But what they've done so far uh, is really just shrunk in a moment where they needed to uh, grow and stand up. And they just kowtowed to the former president of the United States. They're supporting the big lie. And that is detrimental to our future. Well, the four people I just mentioned don't support the big lie. I mean, and they've they've been, you know, risking their professional careers to stand up to it. I, I guess my point is, instead of is, is there not a, a bipartisan effort that could be done so that something could be implemented and passed to protect basic voting rights? I understand the concerns about more expansive voting rights, and I'm not saying I agree or disagree. But is there not like uh, just just a very basic protection that could be worked on with Republicans? Well, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act extension would be that uh, piece of legislation that they can join on right now. Uh, expanding in the Voting Rights Act has always been bi- bipartisan. In the Senate before, it's passed unanimously when uh, President Biden was a senator and chair of the Judiciary Committee. Everybody voted for it. So if they want to do something, they have an opportunity to do it now. They can vote for the John Lewis bill. We want them to vote for it. Uh, but the obstruction we're seeing is scary in this, uh, in where we are right now with a former president pushing the big lie, telling people not to vote, and the subversion and uh, suppression legislation we see around the country. But they will have a chance in the coming weeks to support the John Lewis bill. Cedric Richmond, thank you so much for your time, sir. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Join CNN tomorrow night for an exclusive town hall with President Joe Biden. Anderson Cooper will moderate as the president takes questions from the American people. That's at 8 p.m. tomorrow night and it's only on CNN. Coming up, a major development in the search for Gabby Petito's fiance. The FBI will give an update any moment and we'll take that. That's ahead. And up next, guilty much? Congresswoman Liz Cheney suggests it's obvious why President Trump is fighting the January 6th committee. Stay with us. Mr. Bannon's and Mr. Trump's privilege arguments do, however, appear to reveal one thing. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. And this committee will get to the bottom of that. That's Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming essentially accusing the former president and his former senior advisor, Steve Bannon, of personally planning and executing the deadly January 6th insurrection. But now, as CNN's Paula Reid reports, the chairman of the House Select Committee is attempting to clarify Cheney's remarks, while at least two House Republicans are publicly coming to Trump's defense. Lawmakers investigating the deadly Capitol riot urged fellow representatives today to move forward on a vote to refer Trump advisor Steve Bannon for criminal contempt after he defied a subpoena. We're not asking to talk to Steve Bannon on a whim 
We believe he has firsthand specific knowledge that the Congress needs to have to conduct our investigation. CNN has learned the GOP leaders are recommending a no vote on the referral and Trump allies saying the investigation is an attempt to distract from Biden's failures. Can't talk about inflation, real wages gone down. The border crisis that is concerning them, the problems we have abroad, this is all just theater to set up the utilization of criminal process against Steve Bannon. Give me a break. This is a political theater. I don't know what is. But fellow Republican and committee vice chair Representative Liz Cheney reminded lawmakers why they need to talk to Trump allies. They believed what Donald Trump said, that the election was stolen and that they needed to take action. She specifically referenced comments Bannon made on January 5th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. And he was right. Ask the over 140 Capitol Police officers who fought for hours and were injured. And there is no doubt that Steve Bannon knows far more than he says on that video. Late Tuesday, the January 6th committee voted unanimously to advance criminal contempt proceedings to the House floor. Aye. Of the dozens of witnesses contacted by the committee so far, Bannon is the only one to completely refuse to cooperate. Left unaddressed, this defiance may encourage others to follow Mr. Bannon down the same path. Trump also seeking to block the committee, filing for an injunction to stop the National Archives from turning over some of his White House records. Cheney suggested these moves by Trump and Bannon to thwart the investigation may be evidence of a larger conspiracy. They suggest that President Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. And it's still unclear what Attorney General Merrick Garland will do if he receives that Bannon contempt referral. The committee chairman says three other Trump associates, Cash Patel, Mark Meadows, and Dan Scavino, are being, quote, Somewhat cooperative, but Scavino's lawyer tells CNN today he has not entered into negotiations with the committee. And at this point, Jake, he is not ready to cooperate. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. We're following breaking news out of Florida right now. Any moment, the FBI is set to give an update on the search for Brian Laundrie after items belonging to him were found and cadaver dogs were called in. Stay with us. Breaking news for you now. In just moments, we are expecting an update from the FBI on the search for Brian Laundrie. This afternoon, we learned a medical examiner and cadaver dogs were on the scene at a Florida nature park where the family attorney confirms items belonging to Brian Laundrie had been found earlier today. Now, of course, as you know, police have been looking for Brian Laundrie for weeks after he returned from a cross-country road trip without his fiancée, Gabby Petito. Gabby, of course, was later found murdered in Wyoming. CNN's Randy Kay is live outside the Nature Park in Sarasota County, Florida. Randy, what else do we know about everyone involved in this stepped-up search? Well, we are at the Myakihachi Creek uh, Environmental Park here in Northport, Florida, not far from the Laundry family home. Uh, the FBI is on the scene. They're getting ready to hold a press conference. Uh, the FBI Tampa is going to brief media here uh, on the scene in just a few minutes, uh, we believe. 
Also inside the, uh, the area of this park is the Northport Police Department, um, as well as the coroner from Sarasota County, as you mentioned. Uh, he was called uh, this morning by authorities. And also there's this cadaver dog from the Pasco County Sheriff's Office, uh, which is here to just detect human remains, decomposing uh, remains. This is not a dog that would search for anyone who might still be alive and on the run. They strictly uh, alert for human remains and a decomposing body. So we know that there were these items of interest, as the FBI calls them, or uh, articles, as the Laundry family attorney calls them, belonging to Brian Laundry that were found here uh, earlier this morning on a hiking path just off a trail uh, here in this area of the park. And this is an area that Brian Laundry is known to have frequented. He would hike here and camp here. Uh, his parents brought uh, authorities here this morning after alerting them last night that they plan to come here and search uh, for their son. This area of the park, this uh, environmental park, just reopened yesterday. It's part of the entrance. Okay, Randy Kay, we just lost uh, her satellite, uh, but thank you for that report. Let's talk about this with former Miami Beach, Florida Police Chief Dan Oates and criminologist and behavioral analyst uh, Casey uh, Jordan. So, uh, Casey, let me start with you. Right now, we know investigators found articles belonging to Brian Laundry. There's no confirmation they have found him or his body or any remains. What do you make of all this? Well, they're going with what they know right now, which is that they have items, which I have no doubt the parents said, yes, that's Brian's, probably camping gear, a backpack, a tarp, a tent, something like that. But the fact that they have cadaver dogs there is really telling. It means they they must have found something that indicates there are human remains. Uh, the fact that they brought a coroner. But those two things actually contradict one another because if you have a body, uh, you don't need cadaver dogs. You just need a coroner. So it really raises the question, are they still looking for human remains? And if they have found them, do they actually belong to Brian Laundry? I think the greater question, Jake, is how the parents knew exactly where to look for their son's um, belongings that they found very quickly once they came off the path. It makes you wonder uh, if they knew all along where Brian was, if indeed they have found some trace of him there. Yeah, Chief I, Oates, let me ask you that. Let me put that to you. What, what does it say to you um, that Brian Laundry's parents have not been overly cooperative in all of this. Uh, but today, they, they showed up. They said they wanted to help the search. And shortly thereafter, they found I, or someone found items belonging to Brian. What, what do you make of that? Well, there's a couple different questions uh, circling here. I agree with everything Casey said. I will tell you that in my career, I've never really called out in a coroner unless I had a body or something we thought was human remains. Uh, so that's an indicator, I think, of where we may be. Um, the alternate explanation is, in fact, there is no body there, but we have uh, material that belongs to Brian Laundry. And when and where and how did it get there? Um, there's always the possibility that it was put there as an attempt to misguide or misdirect the law enforcement in its investigation. And if so, what's the history of that area being searched in the past? Uh, what are, in fact, the materials that were found? Do they leave any clues, et cetera? But there's also a very good chance that, in fact, uh, all of this gearing up and the presence of the cadaver dogs and the, the ME is an indication that the body has been found. And then that triggers a whole series of questions. If, in fact, it's Brian Laundry, how did he die? This is a new investigation. And the other big question is, does the crime scene provide any explanation for how, how Gabby Petito died? So 
there's a lot there's a lot to stew on here, and I think we'll know a lot more with the press conference that's coming up. Casey, what in particular are you going to be listening for in the FBI update? I really want to know a little bit more about whether they searched that area before. And did they just miss something? Uh, Remember, these are parents that did not cooperate with the police at all from the outset. And there was one incident where the father went out with the police earlier a few weeks ago at their request. And I think they found absolutely nothing. The idea that all of a sudden, after more than a month, the parents suddenly go, hey, we're going to go look for our son because apparently you haven't been able to find him there and we're sure he's there and they know exactly where to go. It does raise some obvious questions. It's just too much of a coincidence. Was there evidence planted? Was that body there? If indeed there is a body, how long has it been there? Did it just recently get there? Is it suicide? Is it homicide? Again, we're all conjecturing because we don't know that there are human remains there yet. But if that unfolds, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you, Casey, because the press conference is starting right now. Uh, Let's listen in. My name is Michael McPherson. I'm the special agent in charge of the FBI Tampa Division. As you're aware, the FBI and the Northport Police Department and our state and local law enforcement partners have been searching the area of the Carlton Reserve for Brian Laundrie, a person of interest in the murder of Gabby Petito. Earlier today, Investigators found what appears to be human remains, along with personal items, such as a backpack and notebook belonging to Brian Laundrie. These items were found in an area that up until recently have been underwater. Our evidence response team is on scene using all available forensic resources to process the area. It's likely the team will be on scene for several days. I know you have a lot of questions, but we don't have all the answers yet. We are working diligently to get those answers for you. We are grateful for the dedication and professionalism of the Northport Police Department, along with our partners from the state and local agencies. Complex investigations such as this cannot be accomplished by one agency alone, but there's just too many agencies to name them all here today. Portions of the Mayakahatchee Creek Environment Park and Carlton Reserve will remain closed to the public until further notice. This is an active and ongoing investigation, so we ask the public to maintain distance from any law enforcement personnel, equipment, vehicles, and other related activity for the safety of the public and to protect the integrity of our work. We have no additional comment related to today's activities. Our FBI Denver office is the lead investigative agency and all future inquiries should be directed to them. We appreciate the tremendous support from the public and continue to ask for your assistance in bringing this investigation to close. Thank you. With the backpack found near the oh, Justice for Gabby! Justice for Gabby! Justice for Gabby! So that was the FBI special agent in charge uh, giving an update. Let's go back to our panel. Chief Oates, um, what did you make of that? What was the headline there for you? Well, it sounds like they found the body. Um, and um, we'll likely get that confirmation in a day or two. But now what it triggers for the investigators, very, very important, is how he died. And then what is the physical evidence that is there and what condition is it in? in? Um, Is this a suicide? Did he die from the elements in the physical evidence that's there? Is there any indication of uh, or explanation for Gabby's death? 
or any physical evidence that ties him to the crime scene of Gabby's death. And that's those are the trails that the investigators are going down right now. And Casey Jordan, uh, let me ask you, uh, how does this affect, if this is in fact Brian Laundrie, and we do not know that for a fact yet, but if this is in fact Brian Laundrie, how does it affect the investigation into the murder, the strangulation of Gabby Petito? The most interesting thing that I just learned from that presser was that a notebook was found with the backpack. And that really raises the question that if indeed this is Brian Laundrie and if he died by his own hand, did he take the time to write out a note of of explanation? Um, maybe even regret, something that would give answers not only to the police, but to Gabby's family. I think that if that notebook is there, there's a very good chance there could be a note. We, the public, may never know the content. I'm not sure that we get to know, but it would certainly indicate, um, especially if his parents who have voiced their concern that he might have harmed himself or, or have been had suicidal ideations when he went into the reserve, maybe the notebook will have some answers. But if it doesn't, if he has not been in in touch or corresponding or calling his parents in the month that he's been missing, then we may never know the exact answers of what happened to Gabby. And that's going to be a very hard thing for her family to deal with. Very difficult, as if the last month and a half hasn't been difficult enough. Let me me bring uh, Randy Kay, our correspondent on the scene, uh, back. And Randy, um, you just heard uh, the FBI... Uh, spokesman, the FBI uh, agent, special agent in charge, talking about the changing environmental conditions. Uh, in other words, something was underwater, this material that is no longer underwater. Tell, tell us about that. Well, they have been searching here, uh, Jake, as you know, since uh, September 17th, when the family direct, Brian Laundrie's parents directed them here to this area. Uh, but it was, it, it's a swamp. I mean, there were very swampy conditions, so they had Uh, the swamp buggies. They had divers out here uh, many days looking for him. Uh, There was some deep water that they couldn't get to, and they were wondering this whole time, uh, waiting for those waters to recede and hoping that that would help them out in their search. So we don't know if this uh, particular area was fully underwater, but it was clearly not accessible. Uh, You hear a lot of the protesters here behind me, Uh, but it was clearly not accessible for uh, for law enforcement and possibly now for the family to, to get to as well. So that could, that could play a big role in why they made this discovery just today. Uh, and uh, Dan Oates, let me just ask you a final thought uh, about this case uh, as we seem to possibly come to a conclusion of it. Well, there's one other important issue here, and that is with the finding of Brian Laundrie's body, if in fact that's what this is, Whatever reticence the family of Brian Laundrie had to not cooperate with the police out of whatever motivation to protect him or whatever, that's kind of gone. So there is the possibility when investigators go back to the family that there'll be some additional scraps of evidence or insight not previously provided to investigators, which now might now open up. So uh, that's another angle that should be looked into. A horrible story. Dan Coates, uh, Dan Oates, rather, Casey Jordan, Randy Kay, thanks so much. To all of you, coming up, a smaller dose and a more hometown approach. The White House plans to vaccinate kids and fast. That's next. Plus, you might soon be losing that famous F logo on your iPhone. We'll explain. Stay with us.
In our health lead, a giant effort in miniature. The Biden administration is expecting the final okay from regulators to greenlight the vaccination of children ages 5 to 11 in the next few weeks. Instead of mass vaccination sites at stadiums, the Biden administration says that they're going to work with pediatricians and pharmacies to dole out shots. And instead of the full adult 30 microgram dose, kids will be getting 10 micrograms. It'll even come in smaller vials with smaller needles. As CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, vaccinating the country's youngest citizens could have a giant impact on curtailing this pandemic. This will move us further along on our path out of this pandemic. Today, the White House rolling out a plan to get shots in arms for kids as young as five as soon as they're okayed, possibly in the next few weeks. If we can get the overwhelming majority of those 28 million children vaccinated, I think that would play a major role in diminishing the spread of infection in the community. And there's a likely new plan, a source tells CNN, to recommend booster shots for people as young as 40 who received Moderna or Pfizer's vaccine. But you did see some people in their 50s and even late 40s uh, who got very, very sick and even ended up dying. Uh, And so we want to make sure that we're protecting that population. Uh, A booster can potentially be helpful. For those who still haven't had so much as a first shot, major cities continue to crack down. New York's mayor announcing today that all city employees, including firefighters and police, must be vaccinated before the end of the month. City employees not yet vaccinated. We think about 46,000 is the number. That's a lot of people. But the city's powerful police union is threatening legal action in response. Nearly a third of the NYPD remains unvaccinated. 55% of New York's firefighters have the vaccine, according to the union that represents them. Putting people out of work for making a personal health choice is something we can never accept. And in Los Angeles, the city council will now vote next week on extending the vaccine mandate deadline to December. It was originally set to take effect today. An estimated third of sworn Los Angeles police officers still don't have the shot. And Jake, tonight, tens of millions of people could be getting a little bit closer to being able to get a booster shot. Today, the FDA is expected to issue their authorization for use of the J&J and Moderna boosters. A CDC advisory committee will then meet tomorrow to issue their recommendations. The boosters wouldn't be available until after that. Jake? All right, Alexander Field in New York City, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, Let's listen to U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy at this morning's White House COVID Task Force briefing. We know one of the barriers and challenges we will face to getting vaccines to children is a similar barrier we face with adults, which is that there's a profound amount of misinformation that is circulating about vaccines. What would you say to a parent who got the vaccine but is still nervous about getting their child vaccinated? Well, I've, I've had a lot of conversations uh, with parents uh, over the last uh, few months about this, you know, and I've, I have three kids and when their, when their age came up, I get, had them all vaccinated after doing a lot of homework. It comes down to risk reward, right? There's no question that the risk to young people is lower than with adults, but it's by no means zero. Uh, people still get very sick. Even, they can develop long hauling symptoms and in, in rare cases they can die. But overall, I don't know if we have this graphic, I can show you just the impact of vaccines Overall, you know, we, when we, we, we sometimes become the victims of our own success, but we know that for many childhood vaccines, for example, vaccines they already receive, the vaccines have made a, a significant difference overall in, in terms of these cases. I mean, pre-vaccine measles, half a million. 
uh, in, a, in a year. You know, mumps, 162,000, smallpox, 29,000. And look what happens with vaccines. It's just important to remember just the benefit of these. Again, if you, if you don't get these diseases, you forget just how, how effective the vaccines are. As far as risk goes, um, the big thing that comes up over and over again is the risk of myocarditis. That's inflammation of the heart. People's uh, immune systems react to the vaccine, may cause lots of inflammation, and in rare cases, they may get myocarditis. I think, simply put, it's a big topic, but simply put, the risk of myocarditis for your child from COVID is much higher than the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. And it's a contagious virus, so lots of kids are getting exposed. This is the best way to protect them. And just to be clear, when you were talking about severe illness and death, you were talking about what would happen if a kid gets the coronavirus, not the vaccine. Just to, I just want to underline that if there was any misunderstanding yep. out there. The Biden administration says they have enough doses to get every one, every one of the 28 million American kids, 5 to 11 years old, vaccinated. But a Kaiser Family Foundation's poll shows only about a third of parents want to vaccinate their, their young kids. You have three kids that are vaccinated. I have two kids that are vaccinated. But right off the bat, uh, there is a risk, it seems, of these unused doses of vaccine going to waste. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a potential problem. I mean, this is the, the issue with, the, you know, you want to surge these vaccines so you don't run into problems with supply like we saw at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. But this is an issue, you know. I, I think that the numbers may change, as we often see in terms of people's willingness to go ahead and get the vaccine once there's official weigh-ins from the FDA and the CDC. I don't know how much it'll budge. Um, and, and sometimes people won't, you know, rush out and get it right away, but they may take some time. But, uh, you know, hopefully the numbers go up, but it's a real risk, uh, as we saw with the adult doses as well, Jake. A new data analysis from the Brookings Institute found 65,000 more men died of COVID than women. Why? Why are men at, at higher risk? Well, the, the, the honest answer is we don't know for sure. But it's interesting when I talk to researchers who've been really looking at some of these gender differences, it, there's there's a few things that, that keep coming up. One is that who is most likely to contract COVID? Who's most likely to get higher doses of COVID as well? Frontline workers and the potential gender uh, differences there. Um, but also the way that this virus seems to enter the body is through a receptor known as the ACE2 receptor. Um, it's sort of a, a lock and key mechanism. And men in certain areas of the body, uh, including the lungs and the GI tract, may have more of these receptors as well. These are, these are hypotheses, but these are some of the areas that I think investigators are still looking. As we've had more treatments for COVID, the disparity in gender in terms of severe illness and death has gone down. Let's switch gears for a second to a remarkable medical breakthrough. For the first time, surgeons in New York were able to transplant a pig kidney to a human without immediate rejection. How big a deal is this? This is potentially a, a big deal, Jake. I mean, there are a lot of people who are waiting for kidney transplants and there aren't enough donors. That's the simple truth. And people go on uh, you know, long periods, if not lifelong dialysis as a result. This is something that uh, researchers have been investigating for a long time. And just to give you an idea of how they conducted this, um, the, the recipient was someone who, who was brain dead. Uh, they knew this person was not going to survive. They were brain dead already. But they went ahead and transplanted the kidney in there to see if the kidney would work and if the kidney started to function. But also, most importantly, would that body reject the kidney? What they did, Jay, quickly is they basically genetically modified the kidney to take away some of the things they thought would be most likely to be rejected by the human body. And when they did that, at least for a few days, 
the body seemed to accept the kidney and the kidney seemed to work. It's got to be repeated longer term and in more patients, Jake, but it could be a big deal for thousands of people who are waiting for an organ transplant. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sanjay. Good to see you. Turning now to our tech lead, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg needs to testify that message today from a key U.S. senator who's accusing Facebook officials of misleading Congress by providing, quote, false and inaccurate testimony, unquote. This all stems from the recent testimony of a Facebook whistleblower who outed the social media giant's efforts to misrepresent the amount of hate speech on the platform. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan, who's been covering all the Facebook drama, joins us now. And Donnie, what's Facebook being accused specifically of lying about? Hey, Jake, I think really what we see in this letter from Senator Blumenthal is a lot of frustration. He has been asking Facebook for questions about internal research the company has been doing, particularly on its harm to teenagers, and he wasn't getting a lot of answers. Then comes along this whistleblower, shows that there is all this internal research, and I think Blumenthal sort of saying, well, why weren't you telling about this all along, Facebook? Specifically on what he says uh, that he, he believes that Facebook lied to him about is how Facebook is controlling uh, information uh, being shared within the company. Facebook uh, moving in the past few weeks to lock down some pieces uh, of information to prevent uh, another whistleblower like Francis Hagen. Uh, but finally, Jake, just to mention that Facebook are not commenting on this at the moment. They are reading letter. They have confirmed that they received it, uh, but no comment as to whether Zuckerberg will show up in Washington or not. Meanwhile, Doni, in the middle of all this horrific PR for Facebook, we're also learning Facebook is planning to change its name. It is. Yes, it is planning on changing its name. It wants to be known at The Verge reports, Alex Heat at The Verge, a tech publication, uh, for building what they call the metaverse, uh, which is AI glasses, you know, glasses sunglasses that have cameras on them, uh, sunglasses that you can look through and also uh, see sort of partial screen displays. Facebook wants to be known for that in the future rather than all the scandals and trouble uh, that it has had now and in the past few years. We have no indication of what the company's new name will be, but if it thinks that it's going to be able to distance itself uh, from all these woes it has in Washington, D.C., I think it might think wrong. Yeah, I don't think the name is the issue. Tony, thanks so much. Appreciate it. President Biden speaking in minutes as he lowers the price tag on his big social safety net plan. Can he close the deal? We'll bring you his remarks live. And welcome to Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, those who vow to protect and serve, refusing to protect themselves and others from COVID. A special look at police departments across the country and why so many officers are refusing to get vaccinated. And breaking just moments ago in the Gabby Petito case, the search for her former fiance might be over. The FBI saying human remains were found just now. But First, leading this hour, President Biden is set to speak in minutes in his hometown of Scranton, PA, hoping for a little hometown juju as he tries to convince Congress to green light within the next 11 days his massive spending plan to expand the social safety net and battle climate change. The proposal now shrinking a bit, but according to the White House, now in the ballpark of $1.9 trillion over 10 years instead of the previous $3.5 trillion, with programs to expand paid leave and expand the child tax credit and add child care and battle climate change, all taking something of a hit. I'll ask Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts if she is okay with the potential cuts in just a moment. But first, CNN's Manu Raju joins us live from Capitol Hill. And Manu, the tone on this bill has finally shifted, but, but it's far from over. What needs to happen before all 50 
Democratic senators will sign off on this. Well, there are still a number of sticking points, and some of the moderate Democratic senators, Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin, are still not on board. Manchin said he would not yet embrace this $1.9 trillion level. He had been about $1.5 trillion, but he is engaging in significant back and forth. And there are a number of dis- divisions still about how to deal with some of the key issues here. Climate change is central. Progressives and moderates are still haggling over exactly what that ultimate deal could look like after opposition from Manchin, expanding Medicare, and paid family and medical leave. There's a discussion about reducing that from 12 weeks, which was initially proposed, down to four weeks. The child tax credit, you mentioned, was another issue that is still on the table. And now an issue to how to raise revenue. Cinema has indicated that she will not support increasing taxes on corporations and high earners. Of course, that had been essential to financing this package. And talking to Democrats, they're trying to figure out a way now to get around that opposition, either to try to convince her to change her mind, or perhaps look at other ways to raise revenue. And I just caught up with the chief tax writer on the House side about cinema's opposition, and he said this. And I think every Democrat in the House and the Senate voted against the Trump tax cuts. Mm-hmm. This is a chance to address it. Mm-hmm. So if you were against it, this is a chance to repair it. One of the most difficult issues here remains. We have still never seen a top-line from the Senate. Mm-hmm. What's the number? And that's one of the frustrations here from House members. How come they have not heard a specific top line? How much Senate Democrats would ultimately be willing to support? Because all 50 Senate Democrats are not yet behind a single number. Of course, the House had tried to propose this $3.5 trillion plan, which will now be significantly scaled back. But nevertheless, despite these divisions, there is optimism, Jake, among the Democratic leaders that they could get a top line agreement, overall agreement on an outline on this plan by the end of this week. And then that could potentially pave the way for final House passage on that separate infrastructure bill. There's been waiting action in the House for months. That $1.2 trillion bill to pump in money for roads, bridges, broadband, that is still waiting action. But if there's an agreement on the big bill, perhaps it can be an agreement on that narrower bill, but still some ways to go. Manu Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. My next guest says there's been, quote, enough talking and it's time for Democrats to get this done. Joining me live in studio to discuss Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Senator. Thank you so much for joining us. So we don't have a full list of everything in the bill uh, in this compromise, but we have a top line rundown. So take a look. Universal pre-K, a short-term extension of the child tax credit for a year instead of for, for more. Four weeks of paid leave instead of 12. Money for child care, money for elder care. An expansion uh, of Medicare to include uh, things like uh, vision and hearing. We also know that tuition-free community college um, got the axe as well as the clean electricity power program. I know this isn't a bill that you would craft, but could you vote for this? So look, the devil always is in the details, and it depends on how robust the programs are that are being funded and what the plans are on the substitute. So for example, uh, think about it on climate. Climate change is the existential threat. We have got to move and we've got to move fast. The good news is there's not just one program in this package on climate change. There are multiple programs. Our goal is to bring down carbon emissions, and we've got a lot of different tools to do this. If we can't do one particular one because we can't get 50 people on board, we're still looking for other ways that get us to the same point, and that is a sharp reduction in carbon emissions in the short run 
and an even sharper reduction uh, over a longer arc. So I, I hate to say it, but, you know, this is really where everybody's down. They got their shirt sleeves rolled up and they're going back and forth about the details. Yeah. I think we can get there. You think you can get there. You know Joe Manchin. You know Kirsten Cinema. They have been uh, the holdouts, really. I mean, I'm sure other people have other negotiations they would want to make. We just heard from Manu that Senator Cinema, uh, who has been saying this uh, for months, has concerns about the way to pay for this. She does not want to raise the corporate tax increase. She does not want to raise the corporate tax, which, has, which was decreased a few years ago, before she came to the Senate, I should add. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does not want, she's reluctant to raise the top-level tax increase. Now, I know that those are popular provisions to raise taxes on wealthy people and, and corporations, but if she's reluctant to do so, how do you get there? How do you get her vote? So, look, I'd like to be able to raise those rates, and I'll fight to be able to raise those rates, but take a look at my real corporate profits tax. This is not about raising the marginal rate at the top. This is about Amazon making $10 billion in profits and turning around and telling the IRS, oh, sorry, we made nothing, and paying zero in taxes. So I've got a proposal. It's actually pretty straightforward that says for companies that make more than $100 million in profits, um, when they report that publicly, they're going to have to pay at least 7% on their publicly reported profits. That's not raising the marginal rate, but you know how much money it raises? Over 10 years, that raises about $717 billion. So Senator Angus King and I have been fighting for this. This is a way to say our problem is partly about too low a rate at the top, and obviously some Democrats disagree. But I think all the Democrats agree, by golly, everybody ought to be paying something. When you're making the kind of profits mm-hmm. that Amazon and other companies are making, 55 companies make more than a billion dollars in profits and pay nothing in taxes, that's not right. We can stop that, and we can fund a lot of this plan. With all due respect, you don't need to tell me. You need to tell Kirsten Cinema. And also, if it were that simple, why hasn't been it been done? Just because corporate interests are so powerful? Yeah. I mean, come on. You're surprised? No, I'm not. Uh, but 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 well, where, have you talked to Kirsten Cinema about uh-huh, this? Because uh-huh. that's who you need to get nodding in agreement. That's not right. just Not just Look, me. I'm, I'm feeling good about this provision because it's a good provision. And I'm also feeling good about it because the lobbyists are totally freaking out about it, which tells me they're worried it's really about to happen. So Senator King and I have been talking to all of our colleagues. And so far, we haven't got much pushback on it. $717 billion, Jake. Senator Warren, stick around. I have more questions for you. We have a lot to discuss with Senator Warren, including her thoughts on why Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell needs to go and why she calls Amazon a monster. Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead and our guest, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, Let's change the subject. You've called Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell a, quote, dangerous man. You vehemently oppose his reappointment as chairman when his current tenure ends in February. Uh, President Biden has not yet made a decision public. But if he reappoints Powell, will, will you fight it? Will you filibuster it? Will you stop it? I will oppose it. And I'll use the tools I've got. Look, Here's the problem. Um, 
we need a Fed chair who does two things, good on monetary policy, when to raise interest rates and so on, and also good on regulation of the giant financial institutions. Remember the ones that brought down our entire system yeah, I recall. back in 2008. And Chair Powell on regulation, I asked him literally when he came through, when he was nominated for chair by Donald Trump, is there a single regulation in all the regulations that have been put out there? And these banks have grown and they've gotten bigger and they've taken on more activities. Single regulation, you might want to tighten just a little bit. And his answer was, nope, can't think of a one. And in the time that he has been chair, he has consistently just weakened a regulation here and weakened one there. It's not huge, but A, it adds up over time, and B, I don't want to make another five-year bet on someone whose entire attitude is that he is not going to work to rein in the giant financial institutions. That's what went wrong in 2008. That's how I ended up in Washington. And I'm not going to go through this one again if I can help it. We need a Fed chair who takes seriously the responsibility to stand up to the big banks. Um, You're planning to uh, to reintroduce your bill targeting private equity uh, firm practices. It's called the Stop Wall Street Looting Act. The idea is these firms buy a struggling or underperforming company, make big changes at in it to make it profitable. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You say the workers are the ones who pay the ultimate price. Critics say your bill, however, will discourage small business investment. How do you respond? You know, look, they don't have to invest in order to make these businesses more profitable. Some private equity does. But the one I want to stop is when they come in just to suck all the value out of these companies. Because this touches the lives of every single American. Let me give you one example. The nursing home industry has been invaded by private equity, and we've now collected data. And you know what it shows? It shows that once private equity takes over a nursing home, that nursing home's death rate goes up by 10%, and its costs go up by 10%. That's not helping patients. It's not helping employees. It's not helping communities. So what I'm asking for is let's just get some curbs on private equity. So, for example, they have to disclose their fees so investors can tell what they're doing. Or the second one, they have to wait two years before they apply a vacuum cleaner to every bit of value that that company has. They have to stop the tricks. If you sell off the real estate and pay yourself, the, head of the, the private equity that's running this, and then turn around and make the business now have to rent that same real estate. There are a lot of tricks in how they do this, but they're sucking value out, and they're doing it not only in nursing homes and hospitals. They're doing it in um, mobile home parks. They're doing it in retail stores. They're doing it in for-profit colleges, lots of places where lots of consumers really get hurt. We need some curbs. We just in the previous uh, hour covered uh, Facebook Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the trouble they're in and also their uh, plan, apparently, to rebrand. They're going to change their name next week to focus uh, on the, quote, um, metaverse. Um, What's what's your take on the on the pending name change? Are they going into the witness protection program? (laughs) What is this about? It is not going to change the underlying facts and the underlying facts that we need to break up Facebook. Come on. They are a monopoly. Facebook, how do you break it up? Either way, you remove Instagram, make it Instagram a separate company. For openers, what else? you tell them they can't keep eating 
all of the little businesses that come along. You know, they have engaged in practices just like the classic monopolist. Uh, They either buy up or stomp out any competition. And right now when they're selling ads, Facebook is playing both sides of the game. You have to go to a Facebook company to buy ads where? On Facebook because they are everywhere. And Facebook is the seller and sets the price for those ads. I mean, this is just one of those where they have figured out multiple ways to be able to suck more value out of the economy. I believe in markets, but markets require competition. When you've got a giant monopolist like this, you break them into pieces. That's lots of different businesses that can offer different versions of the product. And by the way, when you break them up, you still ought to be able to reach each other. You know, you may not use the same phone company I do, but I can telephone you. Right Right now on Facebook, everybody's got to be in Facebook to see what your aunt's up to and your old roommates from school are up to and so on. What we do is we just break them apart and then let's see a little market competition. I wanted to ask you because the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is is part of this massive settlement with Purdue Pharma. uh, That's the manufacturer of OxyContin. Um, Under the terms of this agreement, the the Sackler family, which... um, owned a, a much of and, and ran uh, Purdue Pharma, they will pay out more than $4 billion, the company will, Purdue, including some $90 million for Massachusetts. In exchange, as part of this deal, there are a lot of moving parts, but in exchange, the Sacklers personally will get immunity from any future lawsuits. Um, I wonder if you think that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is doing the right thing by entering into this agreement. Look, I have no doubt that in entering into this agreement, they're looking at the landscape of laws and how much they think they would be able to get from the Sacklers if they pursue them, particularly given that this is not the only place that the Sacklers are getting protection. As you know, uh, Purdue Pharma, the company, has gone into bankruptcy. And at least right now, the bankruptcy judge in that case, who has been carefully chosen by the company, has been evidently quite receptive to the notion that the Sackler family, without going into bankruptcy, should be able to buy protection for itself. Now, that is fundamentally wrong, in my view. I'm not at all clear that the law permits it. And if it does permit it, I am clear that the law should be changed. If the Sackler family wants to be immune from the deeds that they have engaged in, then they need to go through bankruptcy. And that means they got to fess up to everything that they've done and to how much money they made and how much money they have right now. And they've got to be willing to turn that money over to the people that they injured. That is justice. And I believe we need justice, the kind that everyone else gets. The Sacklers should not be able to buy their way out of this just because they made billions of dollars by hurting so many people across this country. Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. President Biden expected to speak any minute, a critical moment for his agenda. We'll bring it to you live. And how a U.S. intelligence officer started cold calling top American generals to get his family out of Afghanistan. It was a complicated escape. We'll bring you the story next. Welcome back. Any moment we're expecting President Joe Biden to speak in his hometown of Scranton, PA, pitching his scaled back plan to expand the social safety net 
and take on climate change. CNN's Caitlin Collins is traveling with the president in Scranton. Caitlin, what are we expecting uh, to hear from the president? Well, he's in a bit of a position here, Jake, where he is going to be selling a bill that has shrunk since the last time he was on the road selling with this proposal that he had laid out over the summer, what he wanted it to look like. Because we know this week we've just seen how much the bill has been scaled back or pared back. And some programs that the the president wanted inside this bill have been cut entirely. That has not been confirmed by the White House, but we have heard from multiple sources that one of the president's favorite proposals here, which was offering those two years of free community college, is no longer going to be in this plan. That is something that back in July when he was talking about what this bill would look like when it made its way through Congress was a highlight of his. And so, Jake, it's going to be a situation where the president is out here talking about a bill, but also in more realistic terms, because now they are in the nitty gritty part of the negotiations, hoping to get to an agreement by Friday. But we know that even as they say that there is progress being made on certain provisions of this bill that they say can still fit the scope of the plans that they'd like to see put in this social safety net and climate change package, uh, there are other aspects at play here still that are very much underway, including how to pay for this, because we know that we have heard from sources that Senator Sinema, as of today, is still opposed to raising the corporate tax rate. And of course, we know that was a chief proposal from the White House and from some key Democrats that they wanted to use to pay for this plan, to raise that corporate tax rate up to 28 percent, effectively undoing some of those Trump tax cuts that had been put in place, of course, when the former president was in office. And so that is really what's facing the president when he comes out here today in his hometown in Scranton, Pennsylvania, talking about what he wants this bill to look like, what it could still do, while also acknowledging the realities of compromise, because you heard the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, telling reporters on Air Force One on the way here that President Biden is not going to get everything he wants in this bill. Neither is the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, or other Democrats, they believe, because they say it's part of the compromise, part of the negotiation, is they are still working to finalize what exactly this bill is going to look like. Yeah. Talk about compromise. First Lady Jill Biden is a community college professor. I mean, that's got a sting, uh, not just professionally, but uh, at, at home as well. Uh, Kaylin, thanks so much. We're going to come back to you as, as we await the president. Lawmakers are one step closer to holding Trump ally Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena. Today, the Rules Committee in the House advanced the resolution. Uh, now the full House will get their say tomorrow. Let's discuss. We've got a lot to talk about, but Bill, let me start with you on this criminal contempt of Congress vote. Steve Scalise, the House Republican whip, is telling Republicans to vote no on referring this criminal contempt of Congress uh, charge to uh, the Justice Department for Steve Bannon. Uh, One thing for uh, Republicans to line up behind Trump, but to line up behind Steve Bannon, who uh, really is, I mean, I'm just kind of amazed, uh, but are you? I mean, I think I lost my amazement at the current Republican Party <laughs> some time ago. It's good that you retain yours, Jake, because you're you have more of a hope more of a hopeful disposition yeah. than I do. Well, will there be any Republican votes for this? Which is a pretty routine vote uh, normally. If the committee says this is if he's explicitly and obviously defying a subpoena, a lawful subpoena of a House committee, will there be any votes beyond Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, both of whom were joined the committee and, of course, uh, are part of the were part of the unanimous vote to have the subpoena. I mean, it would be kind of amazing, right? 208 to 2 to not subpoena. So let's Steve Bannon defy a lawful subpoena. That's today's Republican Party in the House. And, and take a listen, everyone, uh, to Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, one of the two Republicans on the January 6th committee, trying to appeal to her fellow Republicans in this Rules Committee meeting on why they need to vote 
to hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress? I've heard from a number of my colleagues in the last several days who say they, quote, just don't want this target on their back. They're just trying to keep their heads down. They don't want to anger Kevin McCarthy. I urge you to do what you know is right, to think of the long arc of history. Will you be able to say you did everything possible to ensure Americans got the truth about those events? Or did you look away? Did you make partisan excuses and accept the unacceptable? I mean, I think I know how they're going to answer. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? Because, I mean, we're trying to appeal to the consciences, consciences of, uh, of a House caucus, two-thirds of whom voted to overturn the yeah. election uh, in terms yeah. of the electoral votes in Pennsylvania and in Arizona. Will that work? I don't think it will work, but I still think she should try. So you never know. Someday maybe somebody actually will be moved by something that somebody's saying. And I think she's she's acting like a leader, which is not what they're doing. So leaders are supposed to represent the will of the people, but they're also supposed to lead, hence being called leaders. So sometimes that means making decisions that people don't like because they're very partisan and they want you to do something because they like, for example, Donald Trump, and you have to stand up against them. So the idea that people would make always just make the decision because they want to keep their seat and they don't want to upset Donald Trump and they don't want to upset Kevin McCarthy, that's just not leadership, Right. And I think that they're not really lining up behind Bannon. They're lining up behind Trump. And mm-hmm. Bannon is the proxy for Trump. Because if Bannon, Bannon is basically refusing to talk because he obviously has something to say mm-hmm. that would be interesting to them. And what would be interesting about it is, is what he and Trump talked about. And just uh, to remind our viewers, this is about the attack on the Capitol on January 6th in which people died, uh, which led to the loss of life uh, in subsequent days of, of police officers either dying by suicide or, or other, other ways, uh, an attack on their own workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you listen to things that Steve Bannon said before January 6th, he sounded like he had an idea of what was going to happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you look at a story my colleague Luke Broadwater wrote today, he also highlights some of the comments that Steve Bannon was saying on his podcast in the days before January 6th. Just taking a step back, that's what this investigation is about. Part of it is about finding out what was said at the highest levels of the government, including the president, who he was speaking to, what he was doing on that day, what he was doing in the days before. But what we're seeing here in terms of somewhat the roadblocking that's going on here by the GOP is an effort where they're prioritizing the political ramifications of this investigation going on, an attempt to detach the party from the ongoing conversation about January 6th. Problem is, it seems that accountability and a level of oversight seems to be taking a back seat to that political priority. How do you think these people, these House Republicans, would be feeling if this was any other group of people that had attacked the Capitol for any other political reason? Right. And I think that's the big question, because in addition to what Zolan said, this isn't while Republican leaders and Trump himself are trying to make this a proxy loyalty vote for the former president. This is also fundamentally a question about congressional oversight Mm -hmm. as well. And we've seen over the last years just how effectively neutered congressional oversight has become. But this is about if you defy a lawful subpoena from the United States Congress, shouldn't you be held accountable? Shouldn't you be held punished for that? And I think you'll have some 
Republicans, obviously those on the January 6th commission, maybe a couple others aside with the Democrats on that question. But, you know, at the end of the day, Republicans are going to line up behind Donald Trump. And you're right. If this was another sort of uh, political ideology or another kind of motivation for overrunning the Capitol like these people did on January 6th, they may have a different answer. You know, my sixth grader uh, just had a test on the Constitution and I was going over it with him and it's written right there. Checks and balances. The legislative branch is supposed to keep the executive branch in check. That's how, and vice versa. That's how it's supposed to work. And it doesn't work if people refuse to to accept the responsibility, like you're talking about. Right, right. And it's you've seen how, in terms of strategy, how the during for for example during the first uh, impeachment trial, how the then Trump White House dragged out this process. So time was effectively on their side in trying to kill a lot of these investigations, and and that's partly why you see members of the January Sixth Commission moving so much more expeditiously, actually trying to hold these people accountable. Because I think there's a broad acknowledgement that this investigation may shut down on January 3rd, 2023, if Republicans do, uh, with the good chance that they have of taking over control of the House again. So they're really trying to move while time is on their side. And and, and that's exactly right. Members of the committee are completely aware that House Republicans will probably, if history is any guide, recapture the House and kill an investigation into an attack on their own workplace. That mob was going to kill anybody. They, they didn't. They, they weren't in. I mean, you saw video of Mitt Romney running for his life. Some of the people who downplayed uh, the attack uh, were, were hiding for their lives. Well, Democrats will certainly get the report out before the next Congress, I think. But as a result, the, the stalling by someone like I got to interrupt. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, your friend from Scranton is uh, speaking right now. <laughs> Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.